all of us need to be mentoring each other and helping each other succeed. We need a lot of businesses in this country to be able to decarbonize. <laughs> We're not competing with each other. We have only scratched the surface. We're only doing about a million homes a year with residential solar. We need that number to be at 5 million homes a year. Exactly. We're not really getting to all of the communities that can really benefit from what we're doing. We all got to exchange notes and figure out exactly how we unlock all these opportunities. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I wanted to personally invite you to the Renew Energy and the Solar Maverick holiday fundraiser networking event that we're having on Tuesday, December 5th from 6 to 10 p.m. in Jersey City, New Jersey, which is right across the water from New York City at Hudson Hall, which is a Czech beer garden smokehouse that I'm one of the owners. It's $64 to attend. The admission fee goes to two charities that we're fundraising at the event, which is Let's Share the Sun Valley which we've had on two episodes of the Solar Maverick podcast and the local Boys and Girls Club. And it also covers our expenses for the event. Appetizers will be served. We're also partnering with Grandstand Sports and Memorabilia. They'll be selling memorabilia proceeds that go to charity. At our last two events, we've raised 1500 for each of these charities. If you're interested in sponsoring the event, please email us at info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U-Energy.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you can make it. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host, the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm really excited to have on the podcast, Jigger Shaw. I should call you one of the original Solar Mavericks. I appreciate you making time out of your busy schedule, Jigger. Oh, my pleasure. And Mavericks are all the same. No classifications. For sure. And Jigger, if you don't know, is the director for the loan programs at the U.S. Department of Energy. But now I have a new nickname for you. After the Wall Street Journal article, I start thinking of you as Joe Biden's $400 billion man. So. <laughs> I don't know if people say that to you when they see you. Well, I mean, I do think it's gotten out there. I've had a lot of uncles and others who've seen the article, but we have a lot of hard work to do to get the money out the door. We'll have actually that article as well in the notes of the podcast. Jigger runs the Energy Department's loan program and is trying to hand out a lot of money for green energy technology projects while navigating an unforgiving political environment. That's kind of part of what the Wall Street Journal article had. If you don't know, Jigger Shaw is the director for the loan program's Office of the U.S. Department of Energy, where he leads and directs the organization's considerable loan opportunity or authority within manufacturing, innovative project finance, and tribal energy. With more than 25 years of clean energy experience, he's an expert in clean energy project finance, entrepreneurship, as well as an innovator and leader in the field of sustainable infrastructure. And we're actually going to be focusing on virtual BPAs, which Jigger's going to talk about the interesting things that the DOE is doing related to virtual PPAs. I think it would be great, Jigger, if you could start off talking about some of the major initiatives that the Department of Energy's Loan Program Office, or LPO, or DOE, I'm, I figured I should define these acronyms because there's VPPA, there's DERs. You know, we have a wide range of listeners who listen. Yeah. So can you talk about like what some of the major initiatives are that you're taking at the U.S. Department of Energy Loan Program Office? I think to start, the goal of the Loan Programs Office is to get people 
people to use us, right? I mean, we want to make sure that entrepreneurs and innovators around the country who have really bold visions for how they take their technology across that bridge to bankability and get it fully approved by the commercial debt sector really needs to start with a loan from us and then they can get more respect as they move across the board. So we're seeing opportunities across the board from virtual power plants to nuclear power, carbon sequestration and storage, hydrogen, new transmission lines, critical minerals, battery manufacturing facilities, solar manufacturing facilities. And so I think there's a lot of people using us, but we certainly have had a lot of focus in certain areas that require a lot more attention. So that's like virtual power plants, nuclear power, hydrogen, carbon sequestration and storage. Some of these areas really need a lot more definition because investors really haven't figured out exactly how they make money off those sectors. Yeah, definitely. That's a great summary of that. It would be great if you could define to our audience how you define like virtual power plants. Well, so when you think about how a grid operates, we have the largest commodity supply chain in the world where supply and demand have to equal each other every microsecond of the day. And so you have all these weird things that we do in electricity that no one's ever heard of in the food supply chain or the fuel supply chain or other things because we have to do this matching. So things like inertia or spinning reserve or ancillary services markets or other things like that are things that we don't really do in some of these other markets. But separately, when you think about the load curve and shape today, there's a lot of peaks and troughs where there's a lot of electricity usage and then a very little electricity usage. So that means it's really hard to take some of these more weather dependent energy sources or even things like nuclear power where it's 24 by 7 all the time. You don't want to produce too much power either, right? So that's that's a big challenge. So you can imagine battery storage has come on the scene, which is great. And to the extent the battery storage is co-located with the generator, then it can make it easier for that, you know, generator to provide power when the sun might not be shining or the wind might not be blowing. But the other side of it is also true. So when you have a battery, let's say at your home, it could be the case that during the middle of the day, the wholesale power prices are really cheap. And so because there's so much sun shining, and so you can actually start to make sure that that battery is out of juice by seven, eight, nine in the morning, because there's that peak at six to eight in the morning, and then fill it up with cheap power. And you see that in Texas, where there's a lot of excess wind power in the middle of the night. So you get practically free power in the middle of the night. So folks will actually discharge their battery during the day when power is expensive and charge it at night when power is cheap. All of those services and all of those things start to let you form what we call virtual power plants, which is really figuring out how to make these disparate devices, whether it's EV charging or backup batteries or hot water heaters or even thermostats with HVAC. How do you aggregate up those loads and how do you turn them on and off so they act like a natural gas peaker plant? And the software has gotten so good that there are a lot of folks who can actually do that. Now the question becomes, how do they get fair access to markets so they can get compensated just like a natural gas peaker plant? Yeah, that actually goes to the point of distributed energy resources or DERs and how the utilities, right, should better quantify that, especially when you talk about long-term planning and also electricity generation has been relatively flat, but it's going to increase substantially over the coming years. Can you talk about that sort of trend? And I think you already mentioned that really how DERs will be a way of offsetting and increasing generation coming online. Yeah, there's a couple of big things happening, right? You can imagine that we have been piloting virtual power plants for the better part of 30 years. This is not new. The 
vast majority of like rural electric co-ops already have controls on a lot of people's water heaters. They're radio controlled and they've used them for years to help manage their demand. So this is not new stuff, right? What's new is that for a lot of utility companies, we haven't had load growth in 20 years. So for them, they're saying, why are you making me do something that's different, more efficient, requires training? It requires me to operate my grid differently than I did before. I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to do it. But today we're adding megawatts every week of new load to the grid from electric vehicles, heat pumps. We're adding gigawatts in terms of new manufacturing capacity that has been announced since the Inflation Reduction Act has passed, right? So you have all these battery manufacturing companies, critical minerals companies, solar manufacturing companies, so many additional manufacturing companies that have decided to onshore and reshore here in this country, and all of them need power. But then you separately have AI and ChatGBT, which he alone needs 10,000 megawatts of new load. And then when you add some of the other AI initiatives that are out there, they're also looking for power. And so when you look at what happened with Georgia Power last week, they were projecting only about 400 megawatts of load growth through 2030. They had to upgrade their integrated resource plan to say, actually, no, it's 6,600 megawatts of load growth by 2030. And so Georgia Power is just the first. Now you're starting to see dominoes fall where like every utility company is saying, oh, crap, I guess we need a better toolbox to meet the needs of our customer today. Because otherwise, the governor is going to be yelling at me saying, why are you not providing power to this new manufacturing facility that's going to provide 800 good quality family sustaining jobs? So the first thing that you could do really fast is virtual power plants. Everyone can do that next week because you've got apps on your phone already that allow you to control a lot of these devices. Once you have an app on your phone, you can give control of that app to another provider that can actually then use that load to help manage the grid, turn things on when we need actually more load and turns things off when we need less load. And you have to be compensated for that. So in a lot of places, you're getting, let's say, a 5% discount for every single appliance or load they allow you to control up to 20%. So you get compensated for it. Now, some people are going to say, I don't care how much I get compensated. I don't want anyone screwing with my devices. And others are going to say, I kind of want the 20% discount. So I'm going to give people permission. All of that is happening very quickly. And you're starting to see major appliance manufacturers like Kenmore, which was spun out of Sears, you know, they make 200,000 home visits a week. And when they do those home visits, a lot of folks upgrade their appliances and those appliances come with an app on it and Kenmore can auto-enroll you into a virtual power plant. You see a lot of solar installations now coming with battery attachments. Like in Puerto Rico, you have 100% attachment rate now of batteries with solar. Same thing's true with EV chargers, et cetera. And so you're starting to see that a lot of electric utility companies are saying, this is getting to become a full-blown crisis. We were not prepared for all of the new loads that are coming in. We're going to need to figure out near-term solutions and virtual power plants are at the front of that list. The other thing that's going on, though, is that we had two major weather events this last 12 months, and it scared the crap out of people. So the National Electricity Reliability Council just came out with a report last week, as well as the Federal Energy Management. And they said, look, natural gas is not as reliable as we thought it was going to be. The main failures that we had during these weather events were natural gas. So now that's giving utilities a lot of pause. They were thinking they were just going to scale up a bunch of fans ramp natural gas assets, and they're realizing that that doesn't really work. They can't be tripling down on that risk and maintaining reliability. So we're in a just completely different world. I'm not suggesting that everyone is pro-VPP, but they are pro-open-minded to solutions right now. Definitely, and that makes a lot of sense. And that's great that you explained it because it really helps talk about the closing of the $3 billion partial loan guarantee to Sonova Energy Corporation's project, Hestia, on September 
28th. Can you talk about that? I mean, when you think about the solar industry and the DER industry broadly, there have been various phases, and I've been a part of a lot of those phases. It's the reason why we call it the solar coaster. And so we're currently in one of those solar lulls. The residential solar industry has gotten to the point where they're doing about 700,000 to a million systems a year, but it's gotten tough. If you ask them, are we on track to reaching Australia-level penetration of solar on rooftops, the answer is no, we're not on track. You might say, well, it's because of net metering. I understand that net metering is a hot-button issue that a lot of people get worked up on, but even with net metering, we were not on track to reaching 30 40% of all of the households in the United States with solar on them. So we have got to figure out how we actually make solar an integral part of the way the electric utility manages its grid. And now what you're finding is that part of that is that it has to be available to all consumers. But a lot of the residential solar companies were held hostage by Wall Street, who was saying, here are the only customers you can serve. People with 650 FICO scores and above, people who don't live in Puerto Rico, people who you know live in these neighborhoods, et cetera, right? And I don't think they were being bad people, but they were looking at bad data. They were looking at credit card receivables and healthcare receivables as proxies for energy. It turns out that DOE has 30 years of data around lending to consumers and who pays back their loans. And people pay back their loans at far higher rates for energy than they do for credit card receivables and healthcare receivables. And so we were able to help Sonova with their Hestia project, where they were able to drop their FICO score down into like the 590, 595 range. Oh, that's great. And increase the amount of Puerto Rico content from 3% to 20% of their portfolio, right? I think the last bonds that they just issued were 24% Puerto Rico. So you're in this situation now where Sonova, Hestia can serve a lot more Americans. And as a result, electric utilities are saying, well, now that you're not just working with high FICO customers, but you're actually serving all Americans, we're more interested in partnering with you to figure out how we systematically put solar on rooftops, not just residential rooftops, but commercial rooftops, because these projects don't have interconnection issues like utility scale projects do, right? And we're working on solving those. But in the meantime, you can put a lot of solar on rooftops and not really disrupt the grid because a lot of that energy is used right there on that distribution line. So the Hestia model has really like awakened this entire new phase for the solar industry where they're saying, wait, are we at war with the electric utility industry? We used to be, but I don't know that we are anymore. We might actually want to break bread and find a way to actually work together. And that was the RE plus session I did with Lon Huber from Duke, which yes. you can see on our website and other places. But we're really bearing the hatchet, I think, with the electric utility industry and saying, now that we're faced with this extraordinary amount of load growth, let's figure out how to partner together to actually accommodate all this economic development in this country. That's great. That's exciting. Obviously, it's been the opposite all these years, and it's great to be able to partner with, obviously, utilities and come up with a solution for how to handle load growth and with distributed energy resources. Obviously, it's a partial loan guarantee. So part of me thinks that probably the financing community hasn't got comfortable with it. And that's part of the reason why the DOE is providing this partial loan guarantee. Is that the case? Yeah, that's exactly right. As I said before, there's a couple of things that the financial industry wasn't comfortable with. One is low FICO score. Second is Puerto Rico content. And the third was virtual power plants. They're like, we don't understand this virtual power plant thing and it scares us. So by providing our loan guarantee using our data, they were like, well, we don't have to get comfortable with this stuff. We believe in the U.S. federal government's guarantee. So we're doing that. But in the meantime, the rating agencies are actually taking all the data and learning from it. And they've said to us, look, you know, once you do this five, six times, you may not have to do 
this anymore because we might be able to get comfortable with your data and the virtual power plant piece. Like if you look at what's going on, so part of our loan guarantee requirement because they met the innovation requirements for us was that they had to have a working virtual power plant model. And Sonova, to their credit, worked hard. It took them about eight months longer than they thought it would, but they got it done. And just in the nick of time, right? So when Puerto Rico opened up a virtual power plant, Sonova was the first one to get through that process, get approved by Luma, which is operating the grid. And while I was there, they were pinging their customers through the app and saying, click here to be opted into the virtual power plant and get paid. And so that got accelerated because of our loan. Without that, I don't know that Sonova would have made that number one on their list of things to do. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank our sponsor for this episode of the podcast is Schwerd Consulting. Schwerd Consulting is a leading solar consulting firm dedicated to design, engineering, owner's representation, and technical consulting in all areas of solar, photovoltaics, and energy storage for the commercial, industrial, and utility markets. At Schwerd Consulting, they like to say, we know solar, we just don't do solar. What sets them apart is their 100% focus on solar, while having an extensive background in building and utility engineering and understanding the business of our clients, where they're involved with the trends, technologies, vendors, policies, utilities, codes, and financial considerations for the industry. Therefore, value add for them is not just a slogan, it's what they practice in order to have a loyal customer base and gain trust. Short Consulting has been in business for nine years and has provided services for approximately one gigawatt of PV across over 800 sites in 17 states plus the Caribbean. Let Schwerd Consulting take the burden off you and bring ease and expertise in all areas of engineering and design or help you navigate the technical world of solar. If you're interested in learning more about Schwerd Consulting, you call them at 215-219-6718. That's 215-219-6718 or email to admin at schwerdconsulting.com. Schwerd Consulting's website is www.schwerd.com. Consulting.com. We'll also have that in the notes of the podcast. I've known Steve for 15 years. Him and his team does an amazing job with their clients, and I appreciate him supporting the podcast. And he's also been on several episodes of the Solar Maverick podcast. So definitely check it out through our catalog. And thank you for listening. Let's get into it. So I obviously understand the credit aspect of it. Obviously, all these different technologies with the VPPA, understanding why the financing community, they're used to solar, they're comfortable with solar. Even back, I was at Tesla Solar City doing resi tax equity. It was hard to get the banks comfortable, but then obviously they got comfortable with that. You talk about solar now, community solar. So that makes sense, like different technologies in a VPPA. But why would Puerto Rico be a risk since it's a commonwealth of the U.S.? Old habits die hard, right? That's true. That's a great point. I think they just think, well, Puerto Rico, the utilities bankrupt, et cetera. But people still need electricity. And in fact, the data from Puerto Rico that we reviewed showed that people pay back their loans in Puerto Rico at a higher rate than California. Oh, wow. It's not like it's a bad credit market, particularly because people need it. I mean, it's life or death in Puerto Rico. For many parts of the island, they might be having brownouts every day. And so if you need it for healthcare reasons, et cetera. Today, Puerto Rico is installing 4,000 
systems a month. To put that in context for you, the entire state of New York is 1,500 systems a month. That's amazing to hear that big of a difference with the size of each of the New York State versus the Commonwealth. That's really surprising, actually, to hear that. Well, I mean, this is the thing about the Loan Programs Office is that we're not allowed to have our own point of view. We look at the data and we review the data. And when you look at the data, some surprising things come out of it. But I do think one of the things that we're just hardened by is we've got over $31 billion now of virtual power plant applications either received into our office or that are actively being prepared and that we know about them coming into our office. Like the amount of diversity in applications is extraordinary. We just talked about Sonova Hestia, but there's also a lot of electric vehicle fleets that are using virtual power plants to manage the charging. You've got a lot of folks who are looking at rooftop solar with battery storage, adding EV chargers for heavy duty trucks and medium duty trucks at the same warehouse locations. We have folks who are doing churches and schools and some of that work. We've got folks who are looking at just financing appliances like heat pumps and water heaters and some of that stuff. I mean, it's just mind boggling to me how much innovation is happening in this sector, just how quick VPPs are being adopted nationwide. I mean, we think that close to 20% of the entire U.S. grid's load will be flexible and operating under a VPP by 2030. That's amazing. And just to hear the different types of projects with the VPPs, it's so creative to me how people are applying that. How does the whole process work? Can you talk about like to apply for the VPPs, partial loan guarantee? We have an outreach and business development team, which is just fantastic. And they work with applicants from around the country. They do cold calls. If someone says, hey, we just raised $100 million, you might be getting a call from us. We do a lot of outreach and business development. It's great. And then most recently, we got this thing called the CEFI, the State Energy Financing Institution Program. And what that does is eliminate the innovation requirement that Sonova Hestia had to go through if you get support from a state energy financing institution. So NYSERDA, for instance, is one such financing institution in New York. And they put out a PON, Program Opportunity Notice, for I think it was like $25 million. And the people who receive money from that can then apply for money out of our program and no longer have to meet the innovation requirements. And so there's a bunch of people coming to us saying, hey, you know, we don't want to necessarily do innovation, but because of all the grants that are coming out of the federal government from the bipartisan infrastructure law for heat pumps, weatherization, some of that stuff, you've got extraordinary amounts of low-income consumers signing up for these grants. And they can only serve 3% of all of those folks who are signing up with the grants that are available. And so a lot of folks are using this loan program with us, with this CEFI, you know, money from NYSERDA to be able to help the other 97% of consumers who need help because a lot of them are putting these things on their credit card or going to a payday lender to get money for appliances that they need to do. So that's been great. And you're seeing Minnesota and California copy New York, which has been extraordinary to watch. And I've got four or five other states that want to copy that as well. I think we've got CEFIs identified in 16 states already, and we've got all 50 states on track to identifying at least one. That's great to hear like the federal and state levels partnering and giving more opportunities, especially the interest rates are like 30% or more when you talk about low-income buying appliances. And that's a huge cost savings if they're able to use the bond grant and the federal, and you're able to obviously apply to a lot more people. You know, remember Barbara Heinrich wrote Nickel and Dimed, and one of the things she said was that it's really expensive to be poor. And, yes. you know, I think there's a real truth to that, and we should be in the business of making sure that that's not the case here in the United States of America. But once we accept them into the loan programs office and they figure out a way to qualify. Uh, we verify that qualification by sending them a letter saying, yes, we've taken you through all of our rules and you 
qualify. Now send us a full data room. So they send us the same data room that you would get from a commercial bank. And once that data room is complete and you've got all that, all of those things lined up, we hire some outside advisors and we work through that process to underwrite the loan and, you know, give them a loan. You know, what I love to hear is how innovative the loan program's office is and looking at all these different creative opportunities to apply, you know, renewable energy and energy efficiency and have a flexible and resilient grid, which is so important. Absolutely. We're in a place right now where we're going to have to 2x electricity sales on our grid. And that means we clearly need more bulk power. So yeah, solar wind, but also nuclear hydro geothermal. And we're going to have to upgrade our grid. So we're going to need to use grid enhancing technologies to immediately unlock 30% of the capacity of our grid using dynamic load ratings and smart wires and some of that stuff. But we're also going to have to reconduct our existing grid to get at least 2x out of our existing right-of-ways. So if you look at the existing right-of-ways we have, you can string brand new wire on those right-of-ways yeah. and get double the amount of carrying capacity out of those lines. And then the third pillar here is we're going to need to make our demand more flexible, plain and simple. There's lots of times where wholesale power prices go practically to zero because there's excess power production. And when that happens, we should be using that power. And demand flexibility allows us to do that. And then there's times when we don't have as much power available and wholesale prices spike and we should be shifting a lot of demand that doesn't need to be at that particular period of time. And with that shifting, we can really make the existing wires and the existing stuff that we already paid for a lot more efficient, which actually would reduce rates for everybody. Yeah, that's really complicated. Obviously not easy to do. So I appreciate everything that the DOE is doing to help promote to be able to do that. And it's going to take everyone to be able to get these ambitious sort of goals. So, well, it's definitely going to need to take everybody. But honestly, what we really need is the solar industry to step up because my sense is the solar industry has gotten a little bit old school and they're like just set in their ways and they're not innovating as fast as we need them to. These business models have all been turned upside down by the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. We need them to really step up and figure out how to make DERs and VPPs successful. And right now, you got a lot of folks complaining to me about utility scale solar, and we're working on it. Don't get me wrong, like we're going to fix that too. But they could be shifting a lot of their resources into figuring out this virtual power plant stuff. And it's really, frankly, where a lot of the expertise is in this country. Yeah, I totally agree. The solar industry has to innovate. It's going to be multiple technologies to be able to solve the problem. And I think you're right. Everyone complains about the queues and all the different PGM and all these other things, but we have to be creative as an industry to be able to move forward as quickly as we need to be. And I think you're right. The people who see the value and disrupt the industry are the ones who are going to be the most successful. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. I mean, we've got the smartest, most innovative folks on the planet who live right here. I think with the muscle that we have in the solar industry and energy efficiency industry, my sense is, is that we're going to be able to do a lot more deployment here over the next seven years to meet our 2030 goals. That's exciting to hear. And just switch gears. Can you talk about your book, Create Climate Wealth, Unlocking the Impact Economy? It's definitely a must read. Can you talk about the book if people are not familiar with it? Yeah, honestly, the book was really me just taking a lot of my best practices from my time at Sun Edison and really putting it down on paper. A lot of the things that people go through are not as unique as they might think at the time that they're going through it. The book starts with saying, look, that this opportunity to decarbonize our world is going to be the largest money-making opportunity on the planet. And so we're going to have to rebuild all of our infrastructure, not only here in the United States, but around the world. And we've got the best technologies here because of the work the Department of Energy has done over the last 45 years. So first, 
this is a great sector to make money in. So, you know, you're in the right sector. But the other piece of the book is really just that we got to break down the problem into smaller bite sizes. There's only around 19,000 cities and towns in this entire country. And we've got more employees than that in the solar industry. We have more employees than that in the environmental community. We have more employees than that in the <laughs> energy efficiency community, right? So when people tell me, oh, Jigger, you need to pass a law to fix permitting, it's not how it works. If you want to fix permitting, you got to go to every mayor in the country, knock on their door and say, hey, have I got a solution for you? DOE has invented this solar app with the industry and you should yeah. implement it to make everything more smooth. But people need to, I think, really engage in their local community and not assume that everyone is against this vision for the future, but they just don't understand it. And I think mm -hmm. folks need to educate folks, not just through your day job, but also in your personal life. When you think about how many people have birthday parties for their kids and fundraisers they go to and other things, I find a lot of folks in our industry introduce themselves as being part of the energy industry, which is fine, but it's sort of a way to get out of like actually having the follow-up conversation. People should introduce themselves as part of the clean energy industry or the solar industry. Then people can say, oh, you know, I looked at solar and it didn't work for me financially. And you can go and say, actually, well, lots has changed and I can get you a good deal if you actually like want to do a deal this way because the solar industry, it costs $4,000 to get a customer acquired. I really think that we have hundreds of thousands of interactions every single week and we need to use those interactions to really get this change going and to deploy a lot faster. And there's not a lot of people who do that. But you know who does do that really well? The fossil fuel industry. They've got that gas price sign right there in your face every single day. Every time you drive to work, every time you go places, that <laughs> sign is right there reminding you that gasoline is what runs this country. The price of electricity isn't on a sign. It's invisible. We don't even talk about it. We just say, you know, turn on the light switch. Don't worry, it'll be there. But we've got to start getting people to think about this because ultimately we have the best technology in the world. And if we don't deploy it at speed and scale, then someone else is going to eat our lunch. That's great advice. Each of us should personally be promoting our industry, educating people, outwardly doing that and not when they're asked what they're doing. And that's interesting. I never thought about the whole gas price thing. You're right. Do you ask someone what the electricity rate is in different states? People don't know or they don't even know the benefit of how much cheaper it is to have an EUV versus a gas car. That's a great point. I appreciate you sharing that. My book's a little dated now. I think I wrote it in 2013. But the messages I think are still very similar, which is that I think that in general, there's a lot of folks who think we're going to do this through a lot of Teslas and Elon Musks. And I have a lot of respect for what he's built. But I think that the way we're really going to do this is by having a million businesses doing a million dollars a year worth of business. That's really how this is going to happen. And that's a trillion dollars a year, which is what we need to be deploying right now. For sure. When people see their successful businesses in the industry, they'll flock to it. Our podcast, Solar Maverick Podcast, is also about solar and entrepreneurship. You've been an entrepreneur. You're now an entrepreneur within the federal government. What advice would you give to a clean energy entrepreneur? The big thing I tell people is that I love the sort of fake it until you make it sort of thing. And I appreciate why people are doing that. But you shouldn't fake it to the point where you're fooling yourself. Part of entrepreneurship is you go out in the marketplace and decide that you want to start a business because you have a problem you want to solve. No one who's successful goes into business because they want to make money. They go into business because there's a real need that they think needs to be solved that they're not solving. And so they go out and try to solve that problem. And then as you get feedback, a lot of folks are like, well, that's not really applicable to me or that's not really something that like I need to pay attention to, et cetera. You have to pay attention to that stuff, right? Like, you know, you got to actually listen to that feedback and not fool yourself. I mean, the biggest challenge I have with this CE 
feet as I talk to people and they're trying to convince me about something that I know is not true. I look them in the eye and I'm like, I don't understand what you think is going on here. I've started businesses before. What you're saying does not work. It does not hold water. If you're really fooling yourself, I feel bad for you because like, if you actually believe that and you're fooling yourself, that's terrible. But if you're lying to me because you think I'm too dumb to know, that's even worse. Be honest with me about where you are in your business's life cycle. And we've got programs at DOE that can provide you grants. We have scale up stuff that we can do. We can also guide you to what milestones you need to reach to be able to access a loan programs office. But all of us need to be mentoring each other and helping each other succeed. This notion that we're in competition with each other, we need a lot of businesses in this country to be able to decarbonize. <laughs> we're not competing with each other. We have, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, have only scratched the surface of the opportunity in this country. We're only doing about a million homes a year with residential solar. We need that number to be at 5 million homes a year. Exactly. We're not really getting to all of the communities that can really benefit from what we're doing. We all got to exchange notes and figure out exactly how we unlock all these opportunities. Collaboration, listening, feedback, having a growth mindset, especially with how much opportunity there is. As you mentioned, this is all great advice. This has been an amazing interview, Jigger. I really appreciate you making time out of your busy schedule. If the audience wants to learn more about DOE or you personally, what's the best way that they could do that? We'll have it obviously on the notes of the podcast as well. Our website is awesome. So just Google DOE Loan Programs Office, but it's just, you know, lpo.hq.doe.gov. But we also have an extraordinary LinkedIn page, the DOE Loan Programs Office LinkedIn page, and we're constantly posting. We get all sorts of questions from people that even make our head scratch sometimes. And when we find the answer, we're like, I'm sure this is not the only person who actually wants this answer. If we're going to answer it for everybody <laughs> and we post it. So follow us on LinkedIn. Our page is amazing, but those are the two best places to find us. And I didn't realize about the LinkedIn profile for DOE. So definitely we'll have that in the notes. And that's really helpful that you guys do that. And thank you again, Jigger. I really appreciate your time. This was a great interview. Our audience will learn a lot from it. So thank you. No worries. Thanks for all that you do. And let's keep deploying. For sure. Deploy, deploy, deploy. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jigger. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangen and Kevin Y. Brown. 